All right, and children are dismissed. Kids are dismissed, and they're going out that door back there this week. We're going to change it up. The far door back there is where they're heading this morning. So um, the rest of you who are in here, if you would uh, take out your copy of God's Word, I hope you have that with you this morning. If you don't, there are some in the back or the pew row ahead of you. You could grab one in the pew rack. Um, we are, as a church, walking through the book of Acts. And so this morning, we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 13. We are um, the first, kind of at a turning point in the book of Acts. The first portion of Acts was focused largely on the activity of the Holy Spirit as it worked through the apostles in and around Jerusalem. What we saw was as the sort of focus was on the church around Jerusalem, one of the main figures of that time in church history was Peter. And as we sort of hit this turning point in the book of Acts, we'll see that the shift sort of, it sort of shifts focus away from Jerusalem onto the church at Antioch, which we read about in chapter 11. And one of the main characters who sort of rises to the surface and commands a lot of attention and a lot of focus from this point forward will be Saul. In our passage today, we'll see the first use of the name Paul as he's referred to um, throughout the rest of the book. So Acts chapter 13, I'm actually going to begin reading this morning in verse 25 of chapter 12, okay? And then I'll pray for us, read it, pray for us, and then we'll dive right in. This is God's word. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Menaean, the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for this word, Lord, and we acknowledge as we sit here that this 
Lord, is your word, and it is eternal, and it is true. God, and we just ask that this morning, we recognize that you are present here among us. Lord, we just ask that you would direct us and guide us in your truth this morning. Lord, we pray that you would speak, that you would speak, and that you would help us to be the type of people, the type of church who not only listens when you speak, but also follows as you direct. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, and we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you just a quick question before we dive into this text. When was the last time you found yourself truly, utterly astonished? In awe of something that you saw or something you experienced? When was the last time you found yourself truly astonished? Earlier this week, I was sort of just flipping through my camera roll. I don't know, my phone has this new feature. I don't know, maybe it's an old feature and I'm just discovering it. I don't know, but it's sort of, on one of the screens rotates just pictures from my camera roll. And there was a picture that, that popped up and as I looked at it, I was thinking to myself, this picture is amazing. It was this just beautiful sort of panoramic picture of, a, of some sort of landscape. And I have what was, I think, maybe the most astonishing part of this, me discovering this picture, was I have no idea where I was when I took this picture. But what I do know is that I was so awe-inspired, I decided to capture it with my camera and capture it. I mean, the, the picture was just beautiful. Some landscape, I, I would guess it was somewhere out west. I tried looking at the date. It was in 2018. I've been trying to piece it together since then. I have no idea where I was, but I know this much. When my eyes saw that view, I was astonished. I was amazed. I was in awe of God's creation. When was the last time you had a similar sort of experience? Maybe it was something that God made in creation, Maybe it was some, maybe it's the, the latest Apple event where they released their new technology, astonished. Likely, it was not watching the football game yesterday. <laughs> Unless you're a Michigan fan, maybe, I don't know. But when was the last time you were astonished? This morning, as we go through this first portion of Acts 13, what I believe God wants to, to have happen among us this morning, Parkview, is that we be astonished. What we'll see this morning, what I believe God will use to astonish us is this truth, that God the Spirit provides direction and promises victory in the face of opposition. As we consider what God is doing throughout redemptive history, throughout the book of Acts, we see this point over and over and over again. Sometimes, week after week, I stand up here and I feel like I could, this would be cheating, but I potentially could take the same outline week after week and almost preach the exact same thing. Maybe some of you are thinking I'm doing that. I'm not. We see this remarkable reality and what I hope more than anything is that as we peer into what God is doing in Acts 13, that our hearts are astonished as he directs and proves victorious in the face of opposition. Two points for us this morning. First, I want us to consider as we look at verses one through three of chapter 13, 
is the direction of God in the mission of the church. The direction of God in the mission of the church. The mission of the church, we see, is grounded in God's command and in his direction. Since this direction comes from the Spirit of God, as the people of God, we must therefore have devotion for him and obedience to him as he leads and as he directs. It's precisely what we see the the church at Antioch doing. As God directs them, they're obedient and they follow. Two things that stand out to me about God directing this community of believers in Acts, the first couple of verses of 13. First is their devotion. In chapter 12, 25, the action turns back to the story of Antioch, the church at Antioch. We're told that Paul and Barnabas returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. If you remember, in in chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church of Antioch to Jerusalem on sort of a relief mission. Antioch, we looked at it and we considered this church is a remarkable community of Christians. It's where they're first called, the church is first called Christians. In chapter 11, we see that through this new church, they are already responding to the needs as they see them arise of fellow brothers and sisters and the faith. A remarkable community. One of the things in verses one to three of chapter 13 that really stands out that is so remarkable about this community of believers is how diverse they are. Remember, Antioch is a, is a diverse place. It's a cosmopolitan, sort of multicultural, cosmopolitan city. And the people who are reflected of the church are reflected, the, the diversity of the community is reflected in the people of the church. It's one of the things that makes this church so remarkable. The gospel, we talked about it and we looked at it in verse, chapter 11, broke through barriers. It tore down walls that had historically divided people and kept them from being together. We see here in the verse three verses that this diversity that was reflected among the community was also reflected within the leadership of the church. Look at some of the names that are mentioned in these first couple verses. We see the, the characters here. Barnabas, he's a Jew. If you remember, he's a Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, he's called Niger, likely a man from North Africa. Lucius from Cyrene, certainly he's from North Africa. Menaean, he grew up in the, in the household, we're told, he would have grown up in the household of Herod Antipas, the son of, of Herod the Great. This is the same Herod who, who had had John the Baptist beheaded, who was, Jesus was handed over to, and he sent him back to Pilate, that same Herod. This man was a contemporary. The, the language that's used here suggests that he might have even nursed from the same mother that, that Herod nursed from. So this Menaean individual was a man of high social standing, and then you have Paul, a persecutor turned preacher. What a picture. What a, what a picture of the early church at Antioch and their leadership, people from every walk of life, unrestricted access to different areas in the life of the church, actively leading. They're called prophets and teachers. And what is it that brought them together here in this opening scene of chapter 13? What is it that they shared in common? What are they doing? It's a devotion to God. A devotion to God. A diverse group of people are pictured here, worshiping the Lord together, praying together, fasting together. They are devoted to and dependent on the Spirit of God. Now, it was in the midst of them expressing this devotion to God that we, they are able to hear 
the Holy Spirit. Look at verse two. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. The Holy Spirit said. Someone, this, this, this practice of fasting, it's sort of a, I've heard somebody say before, it's like a, fasting is like a physical exclamation point at the end of sentences such as, I need you, God. I want you, God. I long for you. I treasure you. I want more and more and more of you. That's ultimately what they are declaring to God, a devotion to him. And as they're fasting, as they're longing for his leading, as they're asking God to reveal his will to them, this is where it gets crazy. The Holy Spirit, the Bible said, speaks to them. This is the best part of the story. They are gathering together, share devotion to God. They are seeking his face. Show us what we are to do next. What's our next move? And in the midst of them worshiping God, wouldn't you know it? God shows up. The Holy Spirit says. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I come to church on a Sunday morning, an actual encounter with the living God is sometimes not what I expect to have happen. How about you? Do you show up to church on a Sunday morning, worshiping, praying, crying out to God, listening to his word, and have an anticipation to actually hear his voice? They did, and it's precisely what happened. And I think more surprising, not just were they devoted, expecting to hear from him, not just did he speak, this is, this is where it gets even crazier. They listened. And they obeyed. They actually heard him through the noise of their lives. And as he directed, they followed. They did precisely what he told them to do. Look at verse three. Then after fasting and praying, laying ha hands on them, they sent them off. The Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, send out Paul and Barnabas. And they respond in obedience. And here the picture is a picture of, of, of the, the people of God empowered by the Spirit of God following the direction of God. That's what's happening here in the first three verses. Prayer and fasting are seen here as a, as a means of their dependence and their reliance on the Holy Spirit as he directs, as he leads, as he empowers them. And the truth of the matter is, Parkview, that nothing, nothing worth accomplishing will be accomplished apart from the direction of the Holy Spirit. As we listen to God's word, as we seek his face, as he directs us, we are, we are to seek him and as we consider, what, what's our next move? What's next for us? God, what do you want to us to do? 
There is nothing that's worth accomplishing apart from his direction and apart from his will. Now this, as we've been studying the book of Acts, this should not come as a surprise to us that the Holy Spirit is active among his people, directing them on where to go. We've seen it all throughout the story so far. Just in the last couple of weeks, in chapter 11, God, we see driving and directing the mission of his church. He's doing this through the persecution of Stephen, causing them to break out, people to leave Jerusalem and go to Antioch. God is the one who's causing it. In chapter 12, we see him fanning the flame of the mission of the church as he strikes down Herod, who attempts to stand in his way. In chapter 13, he's, this directing continues as Paul and Barnabas and John are, are thrown out. It says that's actually what the word sort of means, translated well. Thrown out. Throw out for me, Paul and Barnabas. This is not man's work. I think over and over and over as we read the book of Acts, this is one of the things that should come leaping off the pages at us. These are amazing individuals. Yes, they're obedient, but ultimately this is not the doing of man. This is the work of God, the Spirit, active among his people. This is not man's idea. This is the Holy Spirit flexing his muscles to accomplish his purposes through the church. Question for us is, do we have the ability, much like this early church did, to humble ourselves through things like prayer and fasting and open ourselves up to the Spirit's leading to his directing, when we do, we open up ourselves to what only God can do. When we don't, we remain limited to what you and I can do. Let's follow their example. Let's humble ourselves and seek his face, and when he speaks, let's listen and obey. So the Holy Spirit is directing. Point number two, we also see the supremacy of God. We see the directing of the Holy Spirit and the mission of the church. As the story goes on, we see the supremacy of God in the mission of the church. After Paul and Barnabas are sent out, we learn not only is the Spirit of God providing direction, he's also proving triumphant. He's directing them and He's supremely ruling over every step they take. The word of God, we see as, the, as these guys go out faithfully obeying the Spirit's direction, we see that the word of God is a focus, proclaiming that. Paul and Barnabas, they, they head to Cyprus. Remember, this is where Barnabas is from. And as they land there, we're told in verse five that they begin to proclaim the word of God. The Holy Spirit said to the church, send them out for the work that I would have for them to do. Paul and Barnabas' interpretation of what that work was, was to proclaim God's word. It's what they do. And we see here, in the, uh, in, as they step out and into Cyprus, that there's sort of a beginning of a strategy that Paul uses and repeats throughout the book of Acts. He's proclaiming the gospel first to the Jews. He's going into the synagogues throughout the island, proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. And then he goes on and proclaims it to the Gentiles. He, Paul and Barnabas, go all over the island, we're told. And obviously, they're, they're creating, at this point, quite a stir with their activity, because eventually they end up in the largest city of Paphos and are summoned by the proconsul uh, Sergius Paulus. This 
individual, Sergius Paulus is a proconsul. He's a Roman magistrate. He is sort of the chief authority on the island, something like a governor. He's a noble man full of authority, full of power. The text also says that he's an intelligent man. Perhaps the thing that made him the most intelligent was the fact that he wanted to hear the word of God. He heard the commotion that they were causing throughout the island and he summoned them to his presence. Why? The text says because he wants to hear the word of God proclaimed. Can you picture the scene? Paul and Barnabas, not sure sort of what kind of reception that they're receiving throughout the island. Likely the fact that they're moving from one place to the next shows that things aren't going well for them. But eventually they find themselves in the company of the most significant, the most influential person on the entire island. And why? Because that person wants to hear what they have to say. Again, you can see that this is God's doing, right? These are normal, common men who, who at this place have no sort of reputation. They're, they're, Paul is in a foreign land. And here they are, common, ordinary individuals summoned into the palace of the governor. It's a really remarkable scene. And they're asked to proclaim his word, to tell the gospel. You see God's fingerprints, the Spirit's directing all over this. While they're in the company of the proconsul, we see as the story goes on that they are opposed by a magician, by a false prophet. Ironically, his name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Joshua also known as Elemis, which means wise. Well, you can see there's an ironic twist to the story here because this individual, as he's contrasted against the proconsul, is anything but wise. Why? Because he stands opposed to the word of God. Obviously, this individual saw for himself that he could be, uh, you know, maybe his position, his wealth could, could suddenly be risked if this proconsul believes and receives the message that these individuals are speaking, what use is a false prophet for men who have received the truth? What use is, is pathetic little magic for, individual, for an individual who has received the power of the most high God? No use. So he recognizes that and being the deceiver that he is, he tries to oppose. He tries to oppose, stands opposed to the message that Paul and Barnabas are speaking. Paul responds to Elymas with, with boldness and with confidence in verse nine. We hear that he is filled as he speaks to him, filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks directly, intently, the text says, at Elymas, and he declares. These, these, are, these are words that speak with confidence. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Notice the contrast. Unlike the false prophet, Paul, the true prophet, is, is, is completely led by the Spirit of God. He accuses Elemas of making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. That's an unusual phrase, making crooked the straight paths paths of the Lord. And when you come across unusual phrases like that it's in, the, in the Bible, you should sort of pause and you should ask yourself, well, you should ask yourself as you read the whole Bible, what in the world does this mean? But especially unusual phrases that sort of jump out that you don't hear repeated in other portions of scripture. What in the world does this mean? 
Well, making crooked, what we see there in verse 11, is a similar word, same root word as what's used in verse eight when it says that he was seeking to turn them away. Same exact word, making crooked and seeking to turn them away. What, what is making crooked of the straight paths of God? It's, it's what Elemas is attempting to do, to turn aside the proconsul from believing, from receiving the word of God. I think of sometimes driving around in Iowa City, especially in the fall, I don't know why it's always the fall, but it seems like it's always the fall. A couple of weeks ago, I was trying to go to Greg Grove's house from City High. If you know where Greg Grove lives, I'm not gonna give you his address, but it's not far from City High. Yet it took me like 20 minutes because there was one detour after another. Road construction on this street and then on that street and then on street. There was no straight path. The straight path that existed was being made crooked by all the detours. It's precisely what Elemis is attempting to do, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Now, bless Iowa City and their road construction crews. I'm sure they're gonna really help us out. So I'm very thankful for them. But Elemis is attempting to detour these individuals. He wants to put a sign right in front of the proconsul and send these guys out of the palace and off a cliff. He's making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And that's what it is. You make crooked the straight paths of the Lord when you get in the way of people responding and receiving the message of the gospel in faith. Two wonderful things to notice about this text. There's lots of really wonderful things to notice about this text, but two come up right away. First is this. God has straight paths for himself that lead to faith. God sees Sergius Paulus all the way, over 200 miles away from the church at Athens, in, in Paphos, Cyprus, and he means to seek him and to save him. And 200 miles away, there are prophets and teachers. There's a church worshiping, fasting, seeking the will of God. And, and God sees a straight path that leads for Sergius Paulus to faith. He sends out Paul and Barnabas. He guides them to Paphos. He, he arranges a meeting with the governor and he brings him ultimately to faith. We'll see if the story ends. That's the straight path of God. God has straight paths. Secondly, stands out about this is that Elemas, as much as he tries, cannot make the straight path of God crooked. He can't do it. He would like to see the path of Paul and Barnabas right out the back door of the palace and off a cliff. He's actively trying to steer them away, redirect them from Sergius, but it won't happen. John Piper says this, God took the very effort of Elemas to make the crooked path of God and hinder the faith of Sergius Paulus, and he not only overcame it, but he took it in his hand. He laid it in the path and made Sergius Paulus step on it and used it to bring the governor to faith himself. What Sergius intended for bad, God used for good. 
The story goes on and says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. This is what happens to Elymas. God triumphs over the situation. Immediately darkness falls on the magician. Rejecting the hand of God goes from, from being dependent to the hand of others to guide him around. The contrast is striking all the way throughout the passage. Once again, God proves triumphant over Satan and his schemes. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. It can't put it out. No amount of magic, no amount of opposition, no scheming of Satan or of man can stop God. Look at the result. Unlike Elymas, left in darkness, dependent on others, look at the proconsul. The Bible tells us that he believes. The proconsul believed. And when he, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Elymas inserts himself, and God uses that to, to wake the proconsul up, to validate the truth of the gospel, the message that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming. And Sergius responds with faith. He believes when he sees what happens to Bar-Jesus. It's such a fascinating verse, this last verse of the text. It's so crucial for making sense of what's going on, not just in this passage, but throughout the book of Acts. We see the power of God on display through Paul. The proconsul sees it. He sees this, this amazing thing that happens to Elymas as he's struck blind and can't see. And look at what the verse says. Look down at verse 12 says that when he sees this power of God on display, it says he was astonished. What's it say? At the miracle, right? No. He wasn't astonished at the miracle. Look at your Bible. It says he, was, he saw the miracle take place. And it says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished he was amazed, not at the miracle, but at the teaching of the Lord. See, as we study throughout the book of Acts, what we will see and what we have seen over and over and over again is that the Spirit of God is at work in the people of God who are advancing the purposes of God by proclaiming the Word of God. We see a, a beautiful combination of word ministry. They astonish at the proclamation of the teaching of the Lord and of deed ministry. The spirit is active in the church. He's active in the world. Miracle after miracle after miracle. The sign points to the validation of the word of God, the message of the gospel. This is true. One question some churches ask, maybe if you're visiting here today, maybe it's a question you're asking of this church, maybe it's a question you've asked of churches before. Is this church a spirit-led church or is this church a word-led church? If you find yourself asking that question about Parkview East, the answer is yes. Yes, the Spirit leads and guides and directs. 
and the word is proclaimed. This is beautiful dance where they are, you can't disconnect them from each other. Unfortunately, I think many churches can, can overemphasize one or the other. Let's not be a church that does that. Spirit-led church and a word-led church. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. This is a pattern that we see throughout the story of redemption. In Genesis chapter three, we see that humanity falls to uphold God's word as they should. Satan, the great deceiver, turns them away from God. As a result, humanity falls into darkness. And the story of, throughout the, of the Bible continues as the, the word of God comes to the people of God over and over and over again. A people in need of redemption, but they keep in their sin, turning aside from the word of God. Then Jesus, the word himself, breaks into reality. He is the true and better Adam, and he comes to rescue us. Think of Matthew chapter four and the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and the showdown between the son of God and, and Satan. And, and, and similar to this, this passage, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And as he goes out there, in this, and he proves triumphant over Satan through the word of God. If you remember every temptation, he combats it with the word of God. Every single time, he proves victorious. And the church, as his people, we are united to Christ. And we share in his victory. We follow his winning formula. We go about this world filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the mighty word. And the great news of Acts chapter 13 that we should be reminded of every single day is as we do that, nothing can stop us. The Spirit of God fills us, sends us, empowers us. God will be victorious. Think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There is a certain victory that is guaranteed for the people of God. Now, we can be tempted to believe that's not the case as we look at the world around us. I don't think it's any different today than it was 2,000 years ago. It's just what we know. And we can often feel discouraged and defeated as if everyone's getting the better of us. But when we look at this story, we are reminded time and time and time again that God is supreme. Think of Revelation chapter 12, that's prophecy of the, the defeat of Satan, the great dragon. Chapter 12, 11 says this, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. The word of their testimony. God's word is powerful. And what we should be praying for as a church is that we, like the church at Antioch, we follow their example. That we are devoted to God. And as we, as we express our devotion to him, that we expect to hear from him. And that we have, like these individuals, the boldness and the courage to obey him wherever he directs us. 
Nothing can stop us. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, so glad that you're here. This text reminds us that through your unbelief, you are refusing the gracious hand of the Lord. You too, in your unbelief, not unlike Bar-Jesus, seeking to make the straight paths of the Lord crooked. His paths are straight, and this morning, his hand is extended to you. He knows your past. He knows your sin. And the Bible says his arm is not shortened and his ear is not dull. If you cry out to him, he will receive you. He will hear you. The challenge for you this morning is to repent. Turn from your sins. Come to Christ. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I'll just say, if that's you in the first category, not a follower, wouldn't identify as a Christian, love to talk to you afterwards. Love to to talk more with you afterwards about how you can put your trust in Jesus. For those of you who are here this morning and identify as a follower of Jesus, just two things to point out and encourage you with this morning. The first is, the proconsul was astonished. As a church, we never want to lose our sense of astonishment. We never want to lose it. We, we, we want to continue to, to read the Bible and discover who Christ is, learn him, and, and, and ask God to increase our affection for him. One of my favorite things in this room is doing chapel for Faith Academy especially for scholars who are new at the school. As we tell the story of Jesus, the story of the Bible, you can almost see their eyes just get larger every day. And for me, I never wanna lose that. Never wanna lose it. It's something we have to fight for. And there's certainly times where our faith, we can sense that it's, it's less awe-inspiring than it was before. Where your faith just feels flat. I've been there. When you recognize that, the first thing you should do is is lean into the church, not away from the church. Lean into the word, not away from the word, and ask that God would, would fan into flame your faith. We should be a people who are continually astonished by who Jesus is and all that he's done. Secondly, I want you to notice that God is not a static God. As we read the book, it's just so obvious. He is active. He's at work. God is on a mission. He's, he's directed straight paths that produce faith. He's sending us full of his spirit to seek and save the lost. He's not uninterested or indecisive. He's never in maintenance mode, coasting or drifting. He's always sending, always pursuing, always searching, always saving. And he calls us to join him. So if you find yourself just drifting, just maintaining, now certainly there's seasons where you just need to prioritize and care for your soul. And I'm not saying that's not important. But if you can look at your life after you put your trust in Jesus and nothing has changed, just suggest that 
not just do you have a problem, but secondly, you're missing out. You are missing out on what God is doing. Let's be the type of church that is wholly devoted to him and obeys him as he guides us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word as it comes to us. And uh, we just recognize, Lord, that we are a sinful, fallen, a broken people who live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. And Lord, we just desperately need you. And so we thank you from your word this morning that you have, you showed us that you are directing. You're directing. Lord, I pray that as, as we sit here this morning that that would bring a sense of encouragement to us. Because as we look back, there are many steps that we have taken in life that we just can't make sense of. We don't understand why we went through that season or lived in that place. Lord, but we recognize this morning that you have a plan and that you, God, are directing us. Lord, and we also take encouragement this morning because you are supreme. Lord, that you will prove triumphant and that you invite us to share in that victory, Lord. And I pray that that would give us a certain degree of boldness and courage as we step into the, whatever the week holds for us, Lord. Whatever relationships are waiting for us, conversations that need to be had, work that needs to be done. Lord, I pray that you would help us to navigate our life with confidence as we are united in Christ, we share in his victory. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.